Welcome to Team Luke for Minds Podcast. On this show, our mission is to help families just like yours. We'll bring you inspiring stories from brain injury survivors, advice from health professionals, and much more to help make the recovery journey a little easier. If you or anyone you know has a, suffered from a brain injury, this show is for you. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Team Luke for Minds Podcast. I'm Jared Samuels, and today we have Dr. Courtney Toomey, who is a physical medicine and rehabilitation physician at Nexus Children's Hospital in Houston, Texas. So let's welcome Dr. Toomey. Hi. Thank you for coming on. Um, So my first question is, tell us your story. How did you become a PM&R physician at Nexus Children's? Okay, well, so um, I was really, physical medicine and rehabilitation is a small specialty actually in medicine, probably only about half of the medical schools in the country have um, a department, luckily my medical school had a very nice department. And I remember when I picked that as my specialty that the one thing I did not want to do was brain injury because um, at the time I really saw a lot of, thought about a lot of people that would, might be in a disorder of consciousness and how it's kind of a, a period of kind of not knowing what's going to happen. Is the person there? Is the person not there? Um, and And thinking about how difficult that must be. But when we meet, my husband and I moved back to Houston and I was looking for work about eight years ago, this particular opportunity was something that I found. And I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to handle it or not, but I took, uh, I did a lot of prayer and uh, finally uh, came to the conclusion that this is what I was meant to do. And I'm so grateful that I did because it's an extremely, uh, it's a privilege to be able to do what uh, our team does with these kids. Of course, I like our really great outcomes where we have really good uh, success, better than the ones where people are slower to recovery, to recover. But regardless, it's, it's very rewarding. Uh, I definitely don't look at it as something sad, I guess, as, as a glass half full person, I look at it as an opportunity to help someone get better. Mm-hmm. And what, what exactly do you do in your role? So as the physician that leads really the treatment team for the brain injury program patients, I help manage all of the care plan. And often with the care plan, it's an interdisciplinary type care plan, which means as a physician, I'm not the only one who's responsible for getting the patient better, but I am responsible for coordinating that care and ensuring that we're doing a good job together to help the patient. So uh, if we have, for instance, uh, part, one of the problems on the medical list might be mus- spasticity or muscle tightness, which can obviously lead to contractures. So for me, obviously, I might have to write some prescriptions um, to help with the muscle tightness and so that we don't get those contractures. And I'll have to titrate that depending on how the patient is doing. And then the I'll have to educate the parents. And so family is very important because it's important for them to be able to do a lot of passive range of motion when the person isn't um, necessarily conscious or able to move their extremities. And then 
it's also important for the therapist to be doing that. It's important for the therapist and the nursing staff to be able to don and doff splint devices so that we can make sure that we're maintaining, for instance, like a, an ankle or a foot in a neutral position and not allowing the foot to go um, what we call plantar flexion where the foot points down. We um, want it to stay neutral so that when the person has more time and hopefully made some recovery, their joints are still able to move in a normal range of motion and be able to some of their rehab goals. But that's an example of an interdisciplinary goal. And so I help manage various different goals for our brain injury patients and ensuring that the entire team understands their importance of making sure that that happens for the patients. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So you, uh, one of the conditions you mentioned is spasticity. What are some other common ailments you see among brain injury and spinal cord so, patients? Sure. So primarily we get severe brain injury patients. Okay. Injury patients, um, I tend to look at them kind of in three stages of recovery. That would be a disorder of consciousness. The second would be an acute delirium or post-traumatic amnesia. And then the last would be kind of uh, your post-acute functioning. So those are the three stages that we typically, I typically think of brain, severe brain injury. But um, if we get them early, like we normally do, they may have some neurostorming um, issues, which means that they're not able to regulate their vital signs very well. Um, they kind of get stuck in a sympathetic drive, which is what your body might do. If a bear were about to eat you, then you would fight or run as, you know, as hard and fast as you could. Right. Stress response. So they have fast heart rate. Yeah. Stress response. So they have fast heart rates, high blood pressure. They might sweat. They might do a lot of posturing. And so that's a big goal that we work on is to try to calm that down because if you can get that calmed down, you're actually protecting a lot of the healthier neurons. Um, some of the other things might be that uh, patients have GI issues. What I mean by that is, you know, let's say we have them on feeding tubes uh, for their nutrition. Um, because of the brain is like the captain of the ship and kind of modulates and regulates all the functioning of the body. Um, sometimes in the beginning, the gut just isn't working very efficiently. And so there may be some patients that, you know, throw up and um, we want to make sure that that doesn't happen a lot. So we may have to have the patient stay on continuous feeds for a while. And then maybe, you know, eventually move them over to bolus feeds. And then eventually, um, hopefully they'll be eating some on their own. And we do a slow transition from the um, enteral nutrition or the, the tube feeds to um, what they can take orally. So that's another goal. We make sure that patients aren't retaining urine. Uh, so we sometimes have to cath patients, catheterize patients in the early stages so they don't um, have urinary tract infections and that type of thing. We work on sleep-wake cycles. I mean, we really do quite a, a bit because later <laughs> on, once they've recovered, yes, once they've recovered, there may be other goals. They, there may be a lot of behavioral dysregulation or emotional dysregulation that we have to deal with, or maybe there are significant attention issues. So then and those would be things that we would have to deal with further down the process um, it, with the patients. Mm -hmm. And earlier you mentioned dealing with the families. How, how do you comfort the families and the caregivers when they're going through this? So 
I think that families go through obviously a lot of emotions and they go through different stages um, in their processing of what's happened. So I recognize often that parents might be, you know, in an anger stage or in a denial stage. And I don't, I'm not, I would never be, I would never want to tell a person how to handle something as intense as that type of change in a person's life for their child. So I basically meet people where they are. Um, the, mm -hmm. the thing that I find most useful uh, is to just provide education because um, if I'm able to explain to them what's happening with their child, where they are in their recovery, often I feel pretty confident based on a trend of maybe once we've made medication changes of about a week to tell them kind of where I see their child going. Um, I give them often information and packets on different stages of recovery. So it, it's not custom to their child, but there are steps on what they can do to help their child so they don't feel so helpless. Mm -hmm. And so I help the parents with that. But it's not just me. Obviously, I keep talking about the interdisciplinary care plan. There is a lot of education happening from our physical therapists. We have a neuropsychologist uh, who hopefully eventually will do a neuropsychological exam on all of the patients, especially um, if they, they're going to be returning to school. So it, it, I think the longer they stay with us, the more they see their child improve and the more education that they receive, uh, it tends to make, I'm not gonna say it makes families happy. It helps them accept what's actually happening around their lives at that moment. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if you had the opportunity to work with adults too, but maybe if it's not adults, what's the difference between working with um, like a young child and an older child? or you know, someone closer to adulthood or a younger child, what are the biggest differences in working with those two populations? So um, we, I do do some young adults, um, probably the oldest I've done at, at this particular place of employment is um, age 22 and in my residency, we, I did much older patients. But the biggest difference, so when we do pediatric brain injury, we have to think about development uh, I think with any brain injury program, we're going to need to think about what was the what was the general intellect of the person um, prior to the injury. What were their strengths and weaknesses? Did they have um, a diagnosis of um, dyslexia or ADHD beforehand? Because as the person makes their recovery, we have to take those um, cognitive. Uh, realities for that person into account, knowing that the brain injury certainly didn't help those things. If anything, it made those things worse. And then what else are we dealing with now? Uh, developmentally, getting back to that point, you know, if we have a patient who is two, they haven't really developed significant language abilities. Um, they, they don't do the same thing as even like a 10 year old or, or an 18 or 20 year old. And so we are going to, in the long run, see improvements if, you know, all, all things being equal and they, everyone has the exact same injury. We are going to see continued improvement from the two-year-old and we're going to see improvement over a period of, you know, 18 years because the brain's still going to develop. So the point 
for what we have to do is meet that particular patient with the special testing and stuff that we can do with a person with that level of development to meet them where they're at and where they have deficits, make sure that the school and the family have the tools that they need in order to continue to help that brain develop to its maximum functional potential. The issue is um, if someone had a brain injury, all things being equal, depending on if they were two or 12, um, you're not gonna notice necessarily the difference between this brain injured two-year-old versus a regular non-brain injured two-year-old because society's expectations for a two-year-old aren't that high. Right, they're, I mean, they're not expected yeah. to cope for themselves or, you know, I mean, like, like we were saying, their language isn't even appropriately developed the way that you and I are talking right now. Mm -hmm. So if we've already kind of decreased the potential, it, it, it makes it harder for them to develop. So when we see that same patient at age 18 versus a patient that didn't have a, a severe brain injury at age 18, all of a sudden, even though that patient that had the brain injury at age two has developed more, the it's typically much more obvious by the time they hit 18 and we have certain expectations of them societally that um, they had a severe brain injury. So I actually, if I had to pick, um, an age to have like a child have a brain injury, I would rather it be later. Um, they might still have some developing to do, but um, they've already developed so much that um, the potential, at least prior to the accident, had already been met. Mm -hmm. So they probably are going to be able to return, depending on the injuries, of course, to talking and, and things of that nature that potentially that young one might not be able to achieve. Does that make right. sense? Yeah. No, I, I had one at a uh, 20. So yeah, it's different than if I had one at two for sure. Okay. Okay. Um, yes. Yeah. So uh, we briefly mentioned spasticity and that's something that a lot of my friends that have brain injuries or a lot of people I know um, deal with. Do you have any general recommendations regarding spasticity or is it just like a case by case basis? Well, I think um, long-term spasticity can be different than what we're seeing in the acute recovery of a brain injured person with a severe injury, because initially, right after the accident, there can be a lot of posturing and storming, and we see significant spasticity that's often correlates pretty pretty well with the severity of the injury. But over time, as they that inflammation that that from the injury in the brain, as it resolves, a lot of that spasticity that we see initially improves, mm -hmm. but often there is residual spasticity basically in certain areas. So it's no longer generalized. And of course, even when they're really sick in the beginning, they might be more tight on the left versus the right or something like that. But later, once that acute recovery has happened and people are kind of in that post-acute phase and trying to like live their lives to the, to their maximum functional potential, then, um, we might see for, for instance, like, um, uh, a concentrated area spasticity in like the left arm or something. I think when we have a functional person with one area spasticity, it's important to maybe try 
something that's more localized and not generalized. And what I mean by that is if you take an oral medication that has side effects, uh, but it's only one area of the body that has the spasticity and tone, if we're able to have like insurance pay for, for um, for instance, and the medications that might that would be used orally could potentially be like at a lower dose. Um, and then that would obviously help a person who had a brain injury. Let's say they do have slower processing speeds a little bit compared to the way that they were before. Well, if we're able to decrease the amount of systemic medication or the oral medication, because we've been able to use something like Botox to help with their muscle spasticity and therefore improve the function of that limb, then we're also able to maybe help them with their processing speed because we were able to decrease the oral medications that they were on. So um, I think it's important for all those things to be looked at by whoever is helping that person manage uh, those particular issues. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, so moving into a more general questions, um, you may not have any particular success stories, but I like to ask, do, do you have any like particular success stories that really stand out to you that you'd like to share? Oh my gosh. I mean, there's so many, it's really hard. Um, it's nice when we have, I mean, we get a lot of patients that have, um, that come in on a ventilator that come in with a G tube and I mean, not all of them are going to do this, but a lot of them are able to walk out and they're eating a regular diet. I mean, obviously that is extremely rewarding and families are always crying when they leave the hospital. Yeah. Um, but even one, yeah, we, we got a patient, um, recently about a year ago, probably who came from another state and they don't have a lot of resources. It's a pretty rural state. And so the, the, the child is a young girl. Um, she was probably about nine and she was in the hospital for a long time several a couple months um we usually try to get them after a couple weeks so when she came she was already starting to develop contractures i didn't i wanted to change the medication just based on my experience i i i wouldn't have had her on the same medications that she was on she was in a disorder of consciousness but even within several days of just changing the medications you know she started to respond a lot better and she had a lot of complicated neuro effects where we had to kind of tweak medications for her to be able to coordinate her movements, um, for her to be able to regulate her emotions, for her to be able to, to attend and focus more in her sessions. But by the time she left, um, she was really just on the G2 for hydration and she was ambulating and she was here a while, um, over six months. But just even within a couple of weeks of her going home, she was, she was able to run. Um, she wasn't able to talk really well, but she was able to communicate with some communication devices. The, the point being that she's, because she was under the appropriate care with people with the appropriate experience, she was able to flourish to meet her maximum potential. And mm -hmm. it's just when people are scared, they, even lost their child maybe in a, in a car accident. And she wasn't as before. She is so much more functional than I think that her mother ever could have dreamed that she could be. Um, and, you know, the little girl was just so happy. I mean, 
I don't think she had a lot of insight necessarily into what had happened to her and, you know, the loss of her potential. She was just happy. The mom was happy. Everyone <laughs> knew what was going on. And, mm -hmm. you know, she had a really good, you know, plan for when she left. I mean, because it's a, it's a continual process. Um, it doesn't just end when people leave our hospital. Um, but, but that was a really, it was nice to see someone who had been in the hospital a long time as a team, we were able to really affect a big change and to see joy with the family and the child. Um, but I could, I mean, really, I could go through several stories like that. Um, they're not always happy endings. Um, but out of the approximate eight years that I've been here, I can count on my on one hand, the amount of patients that I would put in the vegetative state. Um, kids that are just slow to improve in a minimally conscious state, they're still going to improve. It's just not gonna be at the rate that we want them to improve. And they, mm -hmm. they're not gonna meet that potential that we would like to see with them. Mm -hmm. So would you say that the whole process of seeing someone come in on a ventilator and then being able to walk out, would you say that's the most rewarding part of the job for you? Or what, what is the most rewarding part of the job for you? I think it's just for the kid. I don't think a lot of kids develop mentally and especially depending on the type of injury that they have. Um, teenagers have better insights. Um, I don't know if they all completely understand how hard um, everyone and the patient included had to work to get to that point, but the parents understand. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, it's knowing that, you know, a lot of people are like, I'm just praying for a miracle. And then maybe they don't let me like use some of the tools that we know work. And I always think of the example of like the, the guy who was on top of the roof of his house when it was flooding all around him. And a guy came in a canoe and said, Hey, do you need help? Um, and he's like, no, you know, God's going to save me. And then it happens again. And then like the third time, someone came and he said, no, I don't need any help. And then he ended up drowning and he goes to heaven and he asked God, well, why didn't you come save me? And he's like, I tried to save you. I was using those <laughs> other people as a tool to save you. It mm -hmm. doesn't mean that we have to like do a divine, you know, actual miracle. Although we've seen some really cool things in that regard. Um, but to accept that there are other tools in the toolbox that can be divine and whatever that greater plan is for that person. And if we use them and the parents see the changes, and I think we all kind of recognize when we're dealing with people with the disorder of consciousness, um, I think we kind of all tend to find that place of realizing that the world that we live in is pretty finite. Um, and so the ability to appreciate um, the improvements really grows with that uh, appreciation of, of that finiteness on this particular plane of existence. And um, I think that's more what's rewarding is there's this tremendous amount, I think, of spiritual growth with parents. Um, and I think, you know, that to me is really rewarding as well, probably mm -hmm. the most rewarding. And of course, giving them the tools so they can continue to help their child develop. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Yeah, that's great. Um, so we have a final yeah. question we yeah. ask, we ask everyone and it's, um, okay. 
you know, most people that listen to the show are, are probably going to be caregivers to brain injury, brain injury patients. Uh, they could be the patients themselves, but probably caregivers. So what are your top three? It doesn't have to be three, but I always say three recommendations okay. for a caregiver of a brain injury patient. Um, I think, um, well, there's the analogy they probably have heard before, but maybe not. So I'll share. Um, you know how in an airplane, when uh, they sell you in the videos or whatnot, as you're about to take off, make sure that you put the oxygen mask on yourself before you help your child. Um, and that's because you don't want to be the one passing out from lack of oxygen and then you can't help your kid. Mm -hmm. um, and it's the same kind of concept. Like, I think it's difficult for caregivers who love the person with the brain injury um, to not keep giving and giving and giving. And then so much so that they give too much of themselves. And then they have to be, it's okay to not feel guilt to take care of ourselves and to take respites. Um, because if we are able to put that oxygen mask on ourselves, then we are going to, in the long run, be able to help provide better care for the person that we love. And there should be no guilt to understand and respect that, that reality and that truth. Um, not to say that it's okay to feel those feelings. It's totally okay to feel those feelings, but remember the importance of taking care of oneself. Mm -hmm. um, that's probably the most important thing I can say. I think part of taking care of oneself might be to find people who are in similar situations as like a support group. But if that's not available, just ensuring that you have um, like true good friends, whether it's a family member or a friend who is willing and able to provide that emotional support for when things are really hard. Mm -hmm. um, to me, that's extremely important. Um, and I don't know the third, maybe, I don't know what people's financial circumstances are. Take a vacation, like, and enjoy yourself and go to the beach, you know, like, mm -hmm. um, like yeah, totally to take <laughs> moments to totally, yeah, step away and disengage and do you, um, that has to be done. Um, so whether it's a vacation or something else, but um, it's, it's, it's definitely important for that. And it's okay to have whatever feelings because I'm sure there are a lot of emotions of frustration, sadness, um, and, and it's okay to feel those, but um, it's important to recognize that maybe it's time I take care of myself when I'm feeling that. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, thank you so much for, uh, for coming on today. Yeah. It was great. Really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. This is fun. This is, this is my favorite thing to talk about. Um, because it's, um, this, it's my favorite thing to talk about because to me, it's, I guess we have the, the resources here and I'm not just saying that almost like a sales technique, but like, it's fun as a team to be able to help people. Hopefully most of us went to the healthcare industry to be able to help. And mm -hmm. I know that's a pretty cheesy line, but, um, so anytime you need, anytime you need anything, um, please feel free to reach back out. Oh, for sure. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening to team Luke hope for minds podcast. If you want to learn more, check out our website, team Luke hope for minds.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. See y'all next time.